Lily Flag Signal, episode 15, Chasing Trains. If you're familiar with northeastern Huntsville, or if you pull out a map real quick, you'll see a small community called Chase just a little east of Alabama A&M University. This is going to be the setting for today's episode, particularly the teeny tiny train depot in Chase. Now, as for why that depot exists, there are some dudes from Maine getting nationally famous for selling, among other things, kudzu, the vine that ate the south, a neighborhood that has completely disappeared, some big changes to how the U.S. Postal Service operated, and a lot of railroad enthusiasts who are keeping the trains running decades after passenger service officially ended in Chase. Speaking of, huge shout out to those railroad enthusiasts, more formally known as the North Alabama Railroad Museum, for their help with this episode. When I do episode research, I often spend a lot of time reading old documents, searching historic newspapers, etc., and I try to visit the sites of events I talk about when possible. The people at the museum were kind enough to give me a full tour of the Chase Railroad Depot, old offices, and of course, the trains. And I actually got so enamored with the place that I've since joined the museum as a member to keep learning more and working with them even after this episode posts. I'd also like to thank We Are Huntsville for sponsoring this episode. They're a great resource for finding events and businesses in the area, and you can check them out at wearehuntsville.com or on social media at wearehuntsville. And now, all aboard to Chase! Flag Signal, a Huntsville, Alabama history podcast where I love trains. I recently got involved with the North Alabama Railroad Museum in Chase, about five miles from downtown Huntsville, where they're educating the public on both the area's history as well as the general history of railroading in America. In addition to the historical buildings we'll be talking about today, the North Alabama Railroad Museum, NARM, has like two dozen train cars that are restored or soon to be restored, and a museum with historic railroading artifacts and lots of excursions throughout the year. And by excursion, I mean you can buy a ticket and ride on the train and sit in an almost century-old restored train car. It's super fun, and I definitely recommend it. And I also want to add that just because you listened to this episode, that doesn't mean you got the full experience or otherwise wouldn't benefit from seeing all this in person. NARM's a really cool place, and they were incredibly accommodating in letting me wander around the train cars, ask questions, and generally get in the way while researching the show. But now, let's travel back in time just a little bit to the days before that area was a museum. The land was part of that which was taken by the U.S. government in 1805 from the Cherokee and Chickasaw, but for today's story, we're going to fast forward to the last bit of that century, specifically 1889. That's the year that two brothers from the state of Maine, named Lewis Chase and Ethan Allen Chase, no relation to Ethan Allen, the furniture company, planted some peach seeds on their newly purchased land and incorporated the Alabama Nursery Company. They weren't strangers to the nursery business, as they'd already had one in Rochester, New York, but this Alabama-based business grew and was eventually renamed to Chase Nurseries, and then the location in which the nursery sat became Chase, Alabama. The nursery was very much a family affair, with it being founded by the Chase brothers and having only one of the five original board members not have the last name Chase. A younger brother of the original treasurer-slash-general manager and the secretary, who themselves were also brothers, was a guy named Henry Bellows Chase. He joined the family business in Alabama early on, worked his way up the family corporate ladder to become nursery president, and then led the Huntsville City Council starting in 1916 before being elected mayor in 1919. I'd argue he's the best known of the Chases nowadays, and he'll come up later. Henry Chase and his wife Annie also went on to own and renovate the Backwards House in downtown Huntsville, so there's your obligatory tie-in to a previous episode of this show. 
The Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, which is essentially my home away from home for a lot of the show research, has many of the mail-order booklets, bulletins, catalogs, what have you, that the company sent out. These give a lot of insight into the company's operations, particularly how they are being perceived by and presented to the groups they were selling to, and I'll be citing those a good bit. Chase Nursery was specifically a wholesaler, meaning they were growing plants and then sending them in bulk to nurseries that would then sell to individuals. This meant that, one, the prices were lower since everything was destined for resale and the middleman had to make a profit, and two, things were sold in large quantities, with a single order sometimes taking up multiple train cars. There'd even be notices written on the covers of some of the bulletins stating that if you were an individual who had somehow gotten their hands on a Chase catalog, please return it and instead buy from a local nursery. Not that a random person would have order hundreds of pounds of shrubs at a time, but still. These ordering catalogs were also a great glimpse into how Chase nurseries dealt with hard times. There's a typed note stapled to the front of one of the bulletins saying they were hooverizing by reusing the previous year's bulletin so as to be less wasteful, meaning people could get the old prices for as long as the old bulletins were used. As the typed note put it, quote, You know what Mr. Hoover expects? Demands of all Americans. End quote. This idea of hooverizing, named for Herbert Hoover, leader of the U.S. Food Administration during the First World War and then eventually president, was that people should be more economical and conserve for the war effort. It's interesting to see how such a large company took action on this, particularly because it sounded as though they were losing money by not updating the prices and printing new pamphlets, but also it would look bad on their part to use so much paper when the patriotic trend was to be as cheap and efficient as possible. The booklets distributed during the Great Depression were fascinating too. In fall 1932, the front page of the booklet was printed in red and stated the following, quote, Note, this cover is made of our regular craft box lining paper listed in nurseryman's supplies and selling at four and a half cents per pound, FOB Chase. Feel it once. In other words, they printed the brochure on a cardboardy butcher paper that was already in use around the nursery instead of normal paper that probably would have cost more. Also, FOB here doesn't mean fallout boy like it does in texts I send, rather that means free on board, which has to do with shipping costs. Anyhow, the spring 1933 edition, the next one after that, entitled Chase's Hard Times Trade List in the Red Issue Number 2, was also printed on this lining paper, and every single page was printed in red ink. To be honest, it was somewhat headache-inducing to read. As the company printed on the cover of the booklet, quote, This issue is in red throughout. We missed our guests last fall when the cover was only printed in red. Because of our prices, we are now forced to make all red is the proper color scheme, end quote. So, in accounting, black ink historically indicated a profit and red ink meant losing money, so the implication here is that Chase was putting its prices so low that they were losing money. Is that true? I, I don't know. It may have just been a gimmick to try to convince people they were getting great deals on plants, but given that the country was indeed going through some hard times, it was, if nothing else, a clever marketing scheme. But what exactly was Chase Nurseries selling? Well, a little bit of everything. The booklets throughout the years listed more types of rose bushes than I knew existed. Ornamental shrubs and trees, fruiting plants, conifers, knives, a hedge trimmer with straps that went over your shoulder to ensure the cutting part stayed at waist height, sodium cyanide, wisteria, privet, and of course everyone's favorite decorative vine, kudzu. Yeah, for a while there, Chase sold kudzu, the vine that ate the south, to garden shops all over the country. As someone who has had to try to kill the stuff as it slowly took over my old yard and fence, I visibly cringed when I saw that in the catalog. It took a lot of space to grow all of these plants too, as well as store and ship them. 
The Chase brothers initially purchased 600 acres back in 1889, and this grew, pun intended, into a small community. They also had cold storage for the plants in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as warehouses in Rochester, New York. But the headquarters for Chase Nursery was, of course, here in Chase, Alabama. Looking at the photos in the ordering catalogs, there are fields as far as the eye can see with all sorts of shrubs and flowers. It's too bad the pictures are in black and white. The 1921 Sanborn maps, those maps drawn up for fire insurance purposes every few years, show the Chase community as 13 smaller houses on the south side of the tracks and eight homes, including a larger one labeled Chase Residence, on the north side. The warehouse, depot, nursery office, and other buildings were in the middle, right between or beside the railroad tracks for shipping purposes. A lot of the photos of Henry Chase, the one who was mayor of Huntsville, show him on a horse riding around the nursery grounds, as they were too expansive for him to just walk place to place. I've talked in previous episodes about the idea of mill villages, examples of which were built around the textile mills in the town so that the workers could live near their place of employment and then walk or take the electric streetcar into downtown for shopping and such. The Chase community was similar to that, and with the depot there, residents could catch a train into town. In 1930, there were just under 200 people living in the Chase area, including workers' families and the Chases themselves. On occasions when the residents wanted to go to town for shopping or what have you, it's entirely possible that they took that train into Huntsville. When I lived in South Alabama for a few years, there was a man who told the story of how growing up in the 50s, he and his friends would get on the train in Opelika and ride it to Auburn to buy lemonade and then take the train back. This was about a six and a quarter mile journey each way. I'm not the type to say I was born in the wrong decade or anything for a lot of reasons, but I do often wish I could hop on a train to neighboring town rather than drive. With the Sanborn maps being for fire insurance purposes, they also normally marked water hookups and cisterns and the like, and in 1921 the map of Chase made a point of saying, no fire apparatus. However, the nursery remedied this pretty soon after, with them purchasing a new water tower from Chattanooga in 1925. There's still a, quite rusty, water tower standing behind the warehouse building to this day. If you look at any historic or current map of Chase, you'll see that there are two sets of railroad tracks going by, one on each side of the building. And that's because multiple railway companies had trains going to the depot. This may not sound like a huge deal nowadays with airports, like it'd be weird if Delta, United, American, Southwest, etc. all had separate airports in the same town, but that's not how trains operated. Plenty of tracks and stations were owned by, and thus only really used by, a single train company, and the designation of a union station was given to those which served multiple rail lines. The people at the North Alabama Railroad Museum informed me that the Chase Depot was one of, if not the, smallest union stations in the country. Looking at it, I can believe it. It's a tiny building. This was a huge deal for the nursery, of course, because it meant they had twice the trains, twice the directions, and twice the options of a business with a single rail going by. A big selling point that I noticed throughout the old ordering catalogs was how desperately the company wanted to impress upon people that they shipped things quickly and had multiple options when it came to rail routes. Chase is served by the NC and St. L, that's Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis, Railway, Southern Railway, Southeastern Express Agency, Postal and Western Union Telegraph, and is a money order post office. We get quick action on all mail orders, also freight and express shipments, according to an early 30s bulletin. From the 1914 catalog, quote, if you want it quick, that's in all caps, remember our packing is all done, touch the wire and we will do the rest. All orders received after 4 p.m. shipped same day, end quote. So if you're the type of person who suddenly realized midday that you absolutely needed some plants for your garden shop, chase nursery for your people. 
In the mini-episode I did a while back about the non-battle of Huntsville, the telegraph office in the downtown train depot was a big player during the Civil War, and the same was true decades later at the Little Depot in Chase, with regards to nursery business. That quote I just read said, quote, touch the wire and we will do the rest, end quote, and that's a mention to telegraphy. Wiring someone back then meant sending a telegram, and that was an important way the nursery got its business, as it was much faster than sending a letter, and while not everyone had long-distance phone capabilities, just about every town with a railroad depot would have had a telegraph office. The thing is, telegrams weren't free, and because you're having to type out things in Morse code to send them as a telegram, they were charging for those messages based upon their length. If you ever have the opportunity to read old telegrams, you'll notice that they used a lot of abbreviations whenever possible. It's really similar to how people developed a lot of abbreviations when instant messaging was new. It was faster and took up less space. The same goes for when cell phone users were charged by the text message. The more you could fit into the small amount of characters, the less you had to pay. Anyhow, this also means typing out something like, please send a shipment of 400 Crimson Rambler medium roses, would be pricey. To make ordering plants cheaper, Chase had a code word system printed in the catalog so that the customer could send only a few letters, and thus a cheaper telegram, to indicate what they were ordering. For example, that example with the crimson roses had the code word rear. A lot of the roses had code words starting with R, so these weren't randomized, but some of the choices of code word were humorous. So like sending the word lamp indicated an order of 270 pound assortment of lilacs. Vamp would get you about 100 pounds of wisteria. Rage meant 210 pounds of pillar roses. Panic was 385 pounds of California privet, and Satan was the code word for a particular box of 180 assorted shrubs. I can only imagine how baffled the telegrapher may have felt sending some of these messages from various purchasers back to Chase. I keep saying that the Chase nursery was nationally known, and I want to take a sec to back up that claim and also validate the amount of time I spent reading this guy's personal papers. In 1924, after Henry Chase's term as mayor had ended, he and his wife Annie went on a year-long trip around the world, with a focus of course on visiting botanical gardens. Throughout the journey, he wrote letters back home to his brother, and these were subsequently published a few years later as a small book and sent to nursery owners around the country. Another show of just how well-known Chase Nursery and Henry Chase as a person were is the book of letters compiled for Henry's 90th birthday in June 1960 in a nice little embossed binder. Honestly, this is the sweetest gift. Among the letters were dozens from nurseries around the country that had done business with Chase throughout the years, as well as local businessmen and politicians, including the manager of the esteemed Russell Erskine Hotel and Senator John Sparkman, whose letterhead as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee listed a pre-presidential JFK. These birthday letters were legitimately fun to read. The one by Frederick Martin, who started Martin Stoves, whose building we now call Stove House, heavily quoted Frank Sinatra, and another from a nursery in DC called him the granddaddy of the industry. While I'm sure some of the praise was based on the fact that these were birthday cards, I feel like it still says a lot of how big of a deal Chase was, the nursery and the man. He passed away a year later in 1961. Nowadays, though, the community of Chase is in most ways unrecognizable from the photos of its nursery days. Many of the residences north of the railroad tracks, including the Chase residence, are still standing and in use as private residences, but all the workers' homes south of the tracks appear to be gone, as the area is all forest now. The brick warehouse beside the depot is falling apart, with no roof, busted windows, and tall trees growing inside and bowing out the walls as a testament to how long it's been empty. Another wooden barn farther out was burned at the owner's request in 1992 after it started to collapse. 
The Chase Nursery Office Building and the Little Union Depot itself, though, are still there and thriving. Those are the structures used by NARM, the aforementioned railroad museum, as offices, meeting space, and of course as a museum. The Chase Residence Office and Depot were heavily featured in nursery bulletins, and it was interesting to watch the progression of the plants around the buildings grow in the photos from year to year, then see how they look now. In the old Chase Office Building, now called the Hugh Dudley Railroad History Center, you can see lots of pictures of the nursery under operation, as well as the old Chase safe still built into the wall. This is the building where workers used to collect their pay, and the pass-through window still exists. The depot, which like the office and other buildings on the museum's ground, has been painted green and yellow, is now a combination museum and hangout spot for members. Aside from moving some furniture around, the depot is in many ways as it would have been when it was in operation. There's a door into a ticketing area with a ticket window into where the train employees would have worked and done telegraphy, and the side room with the museum displays still contains a nice old luggage cart as a reminder of its previous use as a baggage storage area. I want to note that the depot you now see in Chase isn't the original one, though it's definitely historic. According to the museum, this one was built by the nursery, not the railroad companies, in 1937, replacing a previous building. Not all of the buildings on the grounds of the North Alabama Railroad Museum are original to the location, including the Plevna Whistle Stop building. I had never heard of Plevna until I got to the museum, but it's a small town in Alabama just south of the Tennessee line. Sure enough, it also showed up on a Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis railway map from 1903, as did Mercury, the next stop down the line from Chase, about half a mile from the depot. Now, as for what a whistle stop is, whereas trains would always stop at the depots on their route, smaller locations would have a whistle stop, meaning the train would only stop there if it needed to, like if there were passengers who needed to get off or freight to pick up. Otherwise, for efficiency reasons, the train would keep going. Plevna being a small community and having a whistle stop makes sense, because that means they probably didn't have a lot of traffic. The actual building used there is what was moved to Chase for the museum, and it honestly is the size of a large shed, just a storage area for waiting cargo and a small covered platform for passengers. Another use for these seemingly middle-of-nowhere railroad-side buildings is mail distribution. Until 1977, the U.S. Postal Service used trains to transport mail, and historically, you'd have a sack of mail hung out at each community that a postal rail car would catch with a pole attached to the car without stopping. I have no idea what would happen if you missed catching the bag, like if the train would have to stop, or more likely, people would just not get their letters out that day and you'd just have to grab it next time around. Either way, you'd probably get in a lot of trouble. Amongst the collection of railroad paraphernalia and cars, NARM actually has an old mail car, still decked out similar to how it would have been while in service, with sacks and cubbies to sort letters, a desk to work from, and the mailbag catcher that is much heavier than I expected it to be. Given that most people prefer to drive everywhere and mail is transported by airlines now, trains aren't at all as ubiquitous as they once were, but the Little Chase Union Depot stands as a little reminder. If any of the stuff I talked about today piqued your interest, you should definitely go out to Chase and see the North Alabama Railroad Museum yourself. It's less than a 10 minute drive from downtown Huntsville, like right down the road from Alabama A&M, and admission to the grounds is free. They post the schedules and ticket prices for the various excursions on their website too, so if you want to go for a ride on the historic train through the area, definitely check that out. It's called the Mercury and Chase Railroad now, named for the two stops on that section of track. Thank you as well to We Are Huntsville for their sponsorship of this episode. Head over to wearehuntsville.com or find them at wearehuntsville on social media. They've got a lot of great info and I really appreciate their sponsorship of this show. 
I'm out at the North Alabama Railroad Museum a few times a month also, and I often post photos of the trains and old buildings, so be sure to follow along on the show's social media for more locomotive content. It's on Facebook or Instagram at Lily Flag Podcast. That's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G Podcast. Two G's in flag. You can also find episode transcripts with sources cited at lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com. If you want to become a monthly supporter of the show and help fund the hours of research, writing, and recording, you can do that at patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast. Thanks for listening, and until next week, don't send people kudzu, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon. Trains aren't as all you pick with. Trains aren't as all you While the Sanborn maps indicated an order of 270 pounds assortment of little. You can also find episode transcripts with. Oh gosh.